Welcome. You're listening to the podcast where we interview founders innovating at the near frontier, whose companies will give you a glimpse of the future. Near Frontier is brought to you by Cantos, a venture firm that invests in world-positive deep tech startups at Pre-Seed and Seed. To learn more, visit us at cantos.vc. As a kid, like most little boys, I was fascinated with trains. Maybe it was because I grew up near train tracks. And as annoying as it was to sit in the car and wait for those sometimes mile or two long trains to roll by, I was fascinated by them. Later, when I saw that historic photo of the connecting of the Transcontinental Railroad, there was just something about the accomplishment there that fascinated me. Maybe it subconsciously led me toward deep tech. I don't know. But I never really thought about it as a center of technology or something that was investable out of Cantos until I met Tim and Alex at Intermotive. The thing is, since the connection of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, Trains haven't changed that much. There's some smart routing that goes on, but but that's it. The trains got longer and longer, and it definitely doesn't move packages like a truck does, like packets on the internet. There's some diseconomies of scale that happened as trains got longer and longer. Well, Intermotive has set out to change that. They're electrifying and making autonomous the rail cars themselves. Rather than having to be tied to a locomotive, they want to unlock the freight from the drivetrain. And that necessitates electrification. The carbon emissions of the rail industry is not very large, but if we could manage to pull more cargo off of trucks, that would be huge. And you can only do that if you disjoint the drivetrain from the locomotive. So let's go talk to Tim. He's a former Boeing engineer that got turned on to trains again by his co-founder, Alex. And we're going to find out what their vision for the future of rail is. There's something about this conversation that just brought out the little boy in me. I don't know. It's like playing with trains all over again, but this time in the real world, much bigger and much cooler. I can't wait to talk to Tim. Let's do it. Tim, I'm really excited to talk about Intermotive today, but let's start at the end. I want to know, like, what is your big, crazy vision for Intermotive in 10, 25, 30 years, whatever? Like, what do you see when you, in your mind's eye, when you go to sleep at night dreaming about the future of Intermotive? No, that's an interesting question to, to lead off with is that future state of the future tech. And honestly, I, I don't see a world where this doesn't exist and where you're not seeing Intermotive cars that are running from, one port of the country to another, whether it's mixed into a normal consist or whether it's on its own, more like the speed and flexibility of a truck. That is what I think about when I'm going to sleep is going from these first customer deployments that we're pushing through this year into those scenarios where Intermotive is part of what people see when they think of rail and when they think of the movement of the goods that are connecting the country. And when they think about how they get from the earth, where a lot of our minerals and, and things come from, to how they get their Toyotas and their finished products that are coming out for that same rail network. And I think what we're building is transformational and it is a way to connect the country and turn it from the hub and spoke model that we see it as today, which is super effective and efficient to a moving conveyor belt that can connect all these different cities, different uh, businesses, and just be the driver that pushes economic mobility and pushes growth in our North American region for the next 
several hundred years, just like it has for the last 200 years. So as you know, I mean, unless you grew up near train tracks, rail is probably out of the public eye. And so can you give us a lay of the land? What does rail look like today? What are some of the problems? And then how's Intermotive addressing that? Maybe that plays into how you how you got interested in this problem in the first place. It's interesting because of the history of rail. So if you think back to a bunch of industrial titans who in the 1800s were thinking about how do they move their products, their goods, and they're thinking with a grand vision in their day of things like a transcontinental railroad, a way to connect the East Coast and the West Coast, the Pacific to the Atlantic. And that was a bull vision from an industrial age in an, in an age where the focus was making things. And that built this sprawling transcontinental railroad that works so perfectly that a lot of times you don't have to think about it. It's not until something big happens, like what's happened recently in the news that people need to start paying attention to it, or what happened during the pandemic where people weren't used to not seeing chickens or toilet paper or anything else on the store shelves and wondering, hey, where's how does logistics work and how does my goods get to me? But I think that the time of rail being built in that way, it was built on the backbone of a steam engine with the power systems of the day, thinking about how do you move 10 cars and how do you move 20 cars. And then today where it's grown to, I don't think those industrial titans would have really understood that now it's trains that are a mile or two in length, moving $700 billion worth of goods in North America. It's a massive amount of material and it's the things that you might normally think of as far as commodities and the things that you wouldn't think of as far as that's how people get their cars, uh, their automobiles. That's how people get their TVs and intermodal containers. And you're doing it in 1.6 million rail cars for just North America. And they're doing it on 160,000 miles of track. So you have track going everywhere and connecting these points from a business to business perspective, as well as a business to warehouse or other type of movement. And it really is a strong mode of transportation with a massive safety and reliability track record that's really positive. However, there's still some challenges with the way that it works. So today, in that 1.6 million rail cars, on any given day, you might have a million of those cars that aren't moving at all. And that's, that's pretty crazy. And the reason that is, is because in that million rail cars, when you're trying to build a train that's a mile long, there's an inherent latency and dwell that has to come into play. So how do you aggregate, sort, organize all those cars that need to get somewhere in a hub and spoke model? And you do it with a locomotive. So you do it with a large five to $10 million asset that has to move these cars, sort them around, uh, and then ultimately get a hundred of them that need to go in the same direction. That takes time. And in a world where we're pushing towards just-in-time delivery, that time is not always there. And then the other thing that that drives with track in particular is like a national average around 3% utilization for that infrastructure. So there's some very high traffic routes, these major highways of rail which are utilized a lot. And then you have these spokes, which you might get a delivery once a week on. That is really crazy from an infrastructure side of things to utilize that at 3%. So how do you unlock that? How do you take advantage of that 160,000 miles of track? That's really where we think the intramotive vehicle unlocks that and changes the way that you think about the movement of rail goods in particular. Before we get into to the technology and what you guys are doing, I think this point about 
the diseconomies of scale is really interesting because in business, we, we always associate economies of scale with positive benefit, right? Defined as, as something scales, the, the unit cost of production goes down, which can be an incredible advantage. But there are times, especially in logistics, when it goes too far and you get like to your description of the industry, one locomotive or, you know, maybe a few in series are pulling a train that's two miles long and to wait for to build a train that long, you've sort of got, you know, half the cargo or whatever it is just sitting there, not moving fast because it's waiting on the other half to show up. And you see this in in shipping as well, right? Like the fact that something crazy like 40 or six, like I think it's 40% of all of the ocean traffic into the U.S., comes through the the ports of Long Beach and LA, right? So you get these crazy backups at these like choke points in the system. And if you sort of, you know, we'll get into the technology, but what I think is so fascinating and my aha moment when I was first looking at Intermotive when we met, gosh, now years ago, is that you are, by coupling cargo to the drivetrain, you like, do away with the whole diseconomies of scale. It's like, it was this, you know, I just love it. I don't know. So get into the technology and let's talk about the implications of what that means for the industry. No, it is interesting. Like the immediate part about the business side of things really resonated with me because you hit two things. You have time and money and you can optimize for one, the other, or a mix of them. And when you look at how you move goods over land, you've got rail, which is really optimized for the lowest mode, cost mode of transportation. And then you have trucking, which is really mostly optimized for time. Like if you're going to truck something, it'll get there in four and a half hours, but it's going to cost you five to 10 times more. When you look at rail, it might get there in four days, but it's going to cost you a fifth to a tenth of the cost. And that is a really interesting driver. And how do you get both? And I think that's really where the technology hits that sweet spot of we can offer something that's fast. We can offer something that's flexible like a truck, but we can also also offer something that's the most cost-effective way and the most environmentally friendly way to move goods from where they are to where they need to be. And with that as a lead-in to the technology, what we're building is a battery electric rail car that can be self-propelled and run off of its own power. And it can be run in three different ways. So one is that point-to-point connection between where you are and where something needs to be, just like a truck. The second mode is taking advantage of the fact that we have a drivetrain on rails with a bunch of physics-based efficiencies. So we can pull five fully loaded rail cars with our car, enabling short trains. And then the last point of the operation is rail does a lot of stuff right. Like if you do have 100 cars that need to go in the same direction, it should go in a train. Tugbolt can ride in that train, has the couplers, has the air brakes, has all the standard safety systems required to be a rail car. And now you can complement that major high traffic section of a route with that hub and spoke where the spoke is one of the things that drives some of that latency. Yeah. Tell us about, so there's two different product lines, the Tugvolt and the Revolt. Tell us a little bit about what each of those does. Yeah, for sure. So the Tugvolt, what we do is we take a a standard rail car and we upfit it. So we take uh, the motors, the batteries, the drivetrain transmission, and then our in-house developed sensory perception geolocation stack and we put that onto the car so a standard rail car might have a 40 to 50 year life to it 
and it's a large investment in general. So if you can take that asset and you can upfit it, you can now give it that flexibility again with the, the drivetrain. And generally, we can do some things that are pretty crazy. We can move a, a hundred tons of freight a uh, hundred miles with as little as a hundred kilowatt hours of battery. And, and for an analogy, that's like your Tesla car. That is because of those physics efficiencies of steel track, steel wheels, low rolling resistance built on the backbone of what a steam engine was capable of 200 years ago. And now driving where battery tech today is actually really well suited to, to solving that problem. And then the revolt scenario it is very similar to a tug volt. It's not necessarily designed to run autonomously or absent of the train. It's designed to run in the consus and regeneratively brake. So it's kind of like a e-bike where if you start pedaling, the motors kick on and it starts pushing. And then when you're trying to slow down, it's regeneratively braking. But that solves a problem around what do you do when you have a mile long train and you're trying to figure out how to charge a, a tug bolt that might be in the middle of the consist. In the revolt scenario, you never recharge it. It's just passively collecting that waste energy that normally goes to heat. And then you can save up to 20% of your diesel emissions in a normal consist by building a Prius train. So you have your, your normal diesel unit and it's part of those stepping stone technologies. The tug bolt is that grand vision of how you fully electrify the revolt is a step in that direction that gets customers used to working with electric power systems, hybridizes a consist. And uh, when you're looking for silver bullets, this is a way to step into that scenario where you want that perfectly electrified solution. And how did you come to sort of figuring out what technology to build in sequence, you know, was, were these both ideas from the beginning or, or did the market lead you to, to one or both of the solutions? Yeah, it's kind of interesting, but the interplay of the, how do you get here from where you are and the people that you interact with and that you build these relationships is really important. And I think it's important to give a, a shout out to my co-founder, Alex Pfeiffer, for why I'm doing this, because realistically, I never really intended to be working in the rail industry. It, it was a interesting full circle because Alex and I grew up in a, a town called Forstoria, Ohio, which is a, a rail town. And it's a place where we grew up seeing trains all the time. And at the time, they weren't really much more to us than inconveniences when we're trying to get to school and sitting at a long train waiting for a, a hundred cars to go past. I go away from Forstoria. I go to South Dakota, play football there, get an engineering degree. And I want to be a professor. So I go to Michigan State, research jet engines, get my PhD in engineering there. And then I want to be a professor. But Boeing says, hey, you're a domestic PhD with an understanding of how to manufacture components for engines. And St. Louis could use you. So that's what brought me here. And I ended up getting an opportunity to continue the work that I was doing in my PhD, applying it to industry, and then connecting with WashU in St. Louis here to, to teach a class or two a semester. Work my way through Boeing in the defense industry, building components for unmanned systems, building unmanned systems, and building some of the coolest tech that honestly you could ever think of, and, and get an opportunity to lead teams first, and then ultimately be a manager of teams, ultimately ending with 40 engineers before I departed Boeing, building flying cars, package delivery drones, and managing a $15 million annual budget. And we built some very cool platforms and products while doing that. And I go to 
2019, uh, a longtime friend with Alex, go to California for New Year's Eve. And uh, he asked me to read a paper and he's doing case studies and doing his MBA, looking at supply chain and logistics and asking questions. What happens when you take all that urban air mobility tech and you take these competitive threats from trucking, whether it's autonomy or electrification, and you apply that stuff to rail? And that's really where the, the reality was, man, I haven't thought about trains since we were kids and haven't thought about how, I mean, are we even using them? Like, what's the scale of it? And that's really where he educated me on the, the expansiveness of the network and the critical element to our supply chain. Then we riffed a little bit talking like, well, automating a whole train or electrifying a whole train, uh, the technology is maybe marginally an improvement in those scenarios, like a hundred cars at three and a half times the weight of a semi each, you already have the benefits of autonomy there. Like you, it's not a cost savings per se, but what you don't have is speed and flexibility. So what if we electrified just one car? What does the power system look like? What does the battery look like? What does that look like for a customer? And that's the original ori origination of the product is let's just make every rail car drive itself and let's electrify each little rail car that's what customers want. And even at Boeing at the time, we were worried about our supply chain moving fuselages by rail from Wichita, Kansas up to Washington or managing inventory of all the raw materials that you need to build an airplane. And it really kind of informed some of the early conversations we had of, okay, now we have this idea, who's going to be interested in it? And that led us down a long path of, let's just spend some time and find customers that say that they'll be interested in this. And that's what took us into these material extraction environments, mining in particular, where you have a lot of captive routes and you've got a lot of material movements. And we went in, ran some case studies for one mine in particular, showing them a 80% reduction in OPEX and a total wow. fleet size shrinkage. And their response was very similar to that. Wow. Like, we don't believe you is the comma uh, after that, like, <laughs> this is not possible. So they hired an external third party consultant, they spent a, a quarter million dollars and paid them to validate what we did trade us against traditional trains, traditional trucks, and all the other autonomous and electric semi truck solutions they could find. And we beat them, we beat them up front costs, we beat them on the recurring cost. And then we knew we had something because at the end of that, they told us some things that we would have never thought about, which is Mining materials is important. So you're trying to electrify things like rare earths aren't really rare. They're just diffuse. And in these scenarios of mining these diffuse materials, hmm. we can run our mine 10 years longer, mining less and less quality grade material economically if what you can do is true. And that's... That's uh, really interesting. Yeah. It's a unintended consequences and in, in these interfaces of... I would have never thought of that. I would have never thought of the the fact that you have small satellite deposits that have to get concentrated somewhere and this makes it economical. And that's really a, a very good market for us to start with because of a friendly regulatory environment, a friendly set of solvable problems for those customers. And that's because it, for these these private rail use cases like it's they they own everything. It's, you know, their track, their land and you kind of don't need to work with anybody but them, right? It's a nice sandbox. Yeah, for a lot of the cases, yeah, it's, it's a, and it represents a big part of the market. You've got billions of dollars a year of equipment getting sold to move dirt. I mean, that's really what the starting point is. Before you get lithium, before you get gold, before you get any heavy metal, you move a lot of dirt. 
And this is a way to do that in a very flexible and friendly way. And then how do you think about, you know, going eventually expanding from private rail to, you know, I mean, I, I as a layperson, I think of, you know, you have intermodal connection where rail is sitting near, you know, ports and or trucking hubs and, and, and we can get into the implications for intermotive, meaning we need less trucks and lowering emissions drastically that way. And then sort of class one cross-country rail, what's sort of the sequencing? Do you plan for intermotive cars to be on all three? Or, you know, I mean, is that, is that are those the three broad categories? I'm again, coming from the outside here. Yeah. No, I think you nailed it well. And it's probably good for any listeners that aren't familiar with rail to understand how it's set up. And, and really, you've got the big railroads that you're used to seeing. Those are the BNSFs, the CSX, the UPs of the world. Those are the, the class one railroads. But there's other classifications of railroads. There are class two and class three. Largely, that's based off revenue. And largely, they'll be called short line railroads, meaning they have a shorter line of track that might connect into the main hubs that go across country. And then on the lowest end of that, you have things like inner plant railroads. So a steel mill that might be moving materials around their plant or mines where they may be moving materials via rail, not necessarily because they're a railroad, but because it's critical to something else about their operations. And when we've approached this market, we've started at that part first. So the part of the the gypsum mines of the world or the calcium mines of the world or the gold mines or lithium mines of the world where they are at the most underserved side of the uh, network. But at the same time, they're some of the most critical parts of it because they're the ones getting the materials out of the ground. And they're also private and captive in a lot of cases or insular in cases, which is just, they're not necessarily interchange connected or interchange running routes. And then when we're talking about interchange, that's where you have two railroads that meet and they might exchange a vehicle or a rail car across that meeting point. As we think about how we go to this market, we start in these captive use cases, these interplant railroads, these mines, short haul back and forth and kind of frequent moves. And we show them that they need less vehicles in total and they can keep them moving. And we help them hit their ESG goals while still saving money. And then on the short line cases, that's really where we can start to revitalize and renew a lot of the network that's there and customers that may previously be served by rail that now have chosen trucking for some host of reasons can start to think about, well, now we can get better service. We can get better product visibility. We can know where our material is because once you electrify, you now have the ability to know GPS tracking. You can see where your goods are. You can see when they're going to arrive and you can plan your plant production around that. And then long haul cases is that future state. So that's where you step into these longer routes going from the Atlantic to the Pacific and you fit into that model of, of rail with the existing rail infrastructure and you get that full end to end flexibility in that future state. And we prove it out as safe and reliable first in these private captive use cases. Then we step into these more regulated cases with waivers and then ultimately work through a, a full regulatory environment for this class. And for the long haul, is that more suited to the Revolt product? So today, if you were to try to run long haul across the country, we would encourage a Revolt. And that's just because the class ones are set up to run long trains. And 
if you break the system going across the country, there's too much relying on that. Too many people are relying on that. Too many businesses are relying on that. The Revolt is well suited to that today with the current mode of operations. However, there is a future state where you can still platoon tug bolts together for traffic management, for energy sharing, and they're physically coupled again, which means they can kinetically share energy directly between each other in a way that you can't do with an electric semi-truck, you can't do with uh, any other class of vehicle. And that's a nuance. It's an artifact of a 200-year-old technology that's actually a huge advantage today. But there's a scenario in the future where it's just tugboats moving across the country and, and very flexibly packetizing that transportation network. And it's analogous to things like the internet. So you had a time where you might have a phone line where you can have one conversation happening on that line at a, at a time. That's kind of the setup for a train today. You run a train, you have a fixed block, you can only have one train going through that at a time. However, if you start to packetize and you send data packets, just like physical cargo packets, now you can start to send you and I conversing from St. Louis to California while there's everything else happening on these same lines. You can start to see that world and that routing through the physical infrastructure uh, of a rail car on a rail line and that analogy. And that's, it's a really powerful unlock if you can take advantage of the infrastructure that way. Yeah, I love that analogy to the packets. I just I visualize, you know, cargo moving itself around the, the physical infrastructure of, of rail. Tell us a little more about the, the industry dynamics, because you have, you know, you're retrofitting the cars and you have, I imagine, you know, loosely the players are, you know, there's there's people who make cars, there's those that make the locomotives, there are, you know, whoever operates the trains, and maybe some of these are the same people, and then there's the owners of the rail itself. Are those all different players, or you know, how, who likes you, who doesn't, who do you interface with most? How do you navigate all that? Yeah, I'd love to to say that there's like one answer for all of that, and it really it's a mix. You've got car builders that are leasing cars into a pool. You've got the the railroads that are coordinating to lease cars into a pool. You've got railroads that own track. You've got railroads that operate on public owned municipality track. The re- reality is, I would just say it is dynamic. There's a lot of things happening. And you can imagine when you have 160,000 miles of track, you can find a representation of almost any use case. The dynamics of rail that's really interesting is that it is all private in North America. So if you're a railroad, you tend to either own or exclusively have rights to operate on a section of track. And that gives you a central controller for the stuff that's going on the network. So if Ian and Tim want to get in their locomotive and drive somewhere today, we can't just get on the rail network and go. From a freedom of mobility, that's maybe not ideal, but from a constrained autonomy and trying to make a solvable problem, it actually is really nice to have that. So you can say, I know what network traffic is happening on this network because I'm tracking the vehicles and the trains that are moving on it. And I can say with a fair amount of certainty that the rare events of something else happening are are very unlikely. You have the right-of-ways of the crossings. You have relatively shallow turn radiuses and things like that. And you don't have as many unusual encounters where today, if our computer vision system detects something that it has never seen, a UFO lands in front of it, 
it can say, I don't know what that is, but I know that I'm supposed to have track ahead of me and today I don't, so I can stop and I can safely avoid that. And then we can use reinforcement learning to say, oh, that UFO was actually a wind turbine blade or something else, but it can fail safe in that way. That is a big challenge for most other autonomy applications in an open world. And again, it's where rail, it's uniquely suited with a huge amount of advantages to be first, but it's also the the industry that it's out, we don't ride on the rails. So we sit in traffic in Atlanta, we see semi-trucks, we say, how come those, how can we make that more efficient? How can we automate it? How can we get those trucks off the roads? Whereas really the technologists and things like that, that are working in aerospace and automotive on these same types of tech aren't necessarily thinking about it first. And that's why there's so much opportunity here to just go after it and, and make a big change. Well, it's, yeah, it's nice to have a constrained environment. I mean, a lot of the self-driving car, you know, tests are in the neighborhood where I work and I watch the Waymos and Zooks and Cruise drive by and they've been, they've been going for years because they're looking for those edge cases, which might take you a while to find. And that's because, as to your point, they're an open environment. But when you're building autonomy on rail, you know, there's only a couple directions that you can move <laughs> forward, backwards, stop, slow down, right? Those, those are kind of the only options. But give, given the constraint, I mean, there's, I imagine there's a temptation almost to, to over-engineer the solution. And I know that you have some teleoperation features in addition to the autonomy. How do you, you know, compare those two? What features seem to resonate most with customers? Yeah, that's an interesting scenario as well. And, and one of the features that, again, is recurring and, and was not something I was thinking about at the beginning was just product visibility and product flow visibility. So today you're loading a rail car and uh, it's moving somewhere, but it's actually a static asset, has no electricity on it, has no ability to continue to ping. And you might use something like an RFID tag on it, but that's only good when you pass a reader. Once we electrify in this way and, and a lot of what we need to do ends up being inherent features. You know down to the centimeter where your product is and whether it's moving or not. You know based on the uh, characteristic profile of the vehicles what the, the loaded state or unloaded state of the, the car itself is. You get a visibility of this is how many tons per day you're moving. When we talk to customers uh, today and they say this is how many tons per year we moved. And it's not until you get to those granular levels that you can say like, okay, we're running 174 days out of the year at capacity. And there's all these other days where stuff's breaking down or, or track maintenance is an issue. And we can start to help them get those efficiencies out of their operations. And it's a piece of the product The the product's solution is move in goods. But the other things that come with that is, is really kind of interesting. And it's been a cool set of conversations with these early customers about that and what it means for them, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that you, you know, you sort of, you started with electrification and autonomy features, but then you're, you know, it occurs to you as you go, well, hold on, we have onboard power systems and compute so we can add things like sensors that give them much needed intelligence at the car level. That's one of the nice things about being an innovator in an industry that is um, 
has not necessarily been tech forward, at least not on the on the information technology side of things. How do you find the the receptivity of the industry? I know sometimes a stereotype is startup folks show up in an industry and try and sell them tech, and they're like, "Hold on, guys, we've been doing it our way for a while." And there's maybe some negative inertia there. Other times, it's a totally different story. And I imagine you know your responses have ranged the gamut. But what does that interaction with customers usually look like? Yeah, I think. I mean, honestly, I. I am approaching this as a rail outsider. Uh, one of the first things Alex and I did was find a local railroad and go ride around on engines with them and see what they're actually doing and, and see how they're operating, even before we engineered a full solution. And the reason for that is because they're experts in that. They're, they know what they're doing now. They know why they're doing it. And they know the pain points that they've got. And so if you go in and you say, hey, I've got this solution for a pain point you don't have, that that's not natural friction. Hey, this isn't solving my problems. However, when you're riding around on an engine with the crews and you're seeing what they're doing, you realize everything is somewhat simple. Like you said, you're on tracks. However, it's a lot more nuanced than what you might've expected. And in that nuance is a huge amount of complexity. It's how do you cut a car 49 out of a train and, and how do you find it? And sometimes it can be a complex thing to do that. We showed one customer here in our St. Louis facility, the autonomous train running itself. It ran itself through a simulated mission profile for their site. And then they saw the automated dump mechanism that's part of it, the system. And they said, this automated electric train is, is cool. That automated dump part solves a whole bunch of problems for us. It gets people away from the cars. It gets safety and reliability up. Can we just buy that piece? And that's an interesting encounter. It's an encounter through listening and hearing what they're interested in. And it's an encounter that says, yeah, I mean, we can do that. Once you electrify or even have a small power system, that changes everything. And it's a good way to build some trust. It's a good way to build some relationships. It's a good way to build a platform where it's not just, this is the product we're selling, but we're providing you with solutions. And it's a good way to get them used to working with us. So it's been a fun industry to come into. It's really as any industry probably is, it's a small world and, and people know people. But I've been pretty positively impacted by the reception of what we're doing. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, it seems like there's a lot of low hanging fruit there. One of the one of the high class problems to have is allocating resources along different features that you could be building, depending on, you know, customer A wants this, customer B is a little more interested in this. I find that's one of the most difficult problems that founders face and there's never a right answer. It totally depends on your business and the market you're operating in. I think I, I've thus far been really impressed with how you guys have, have dealt with that because it does seem sometimes different customers are pulling you in different directions and you guys have been pretty clear in your decisions. Yeah, no, that's a good point too. I mean, we are bandwidth constrained and as any early tech company would be. But I think it's been really key for us to focus. And there is things people have asked for that we've said no. So one customer said, hey, it's great. Can you take our rail cars and then drive them off the track and deliver it like a truck? And no, that's not really a great solution for what we're trying to do. That's, that's a scope for a different company. And it's an interesting idea, but it's not one that we're going to focus the resources on trying to deliver to you. And then there's others where 
things like these automated dump mechanisms. It's within the scope of what we're trying to accomplish and what we've already done anyway. It's actually a feature on the way to a product from our original mindset. And so it's supporting the couple of key customers that are the, the right customers for us at this stage. And it's making sure that they're completely satisfied uh, and that they're the ones that have signed up for these technologies. And they're the ones that we're going to give first preference to when it comes to supporting what they want. Well, I love that you've told customers no. Steve Jobs once said, focus is saying no. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Because the most valuable thing you have is time. You're in your your team's time. You got to use that wisely. Tell us a little bit about raising venture capital for a a hardware startup. You've, you've you know, raised a pre-seed and a seed round. What was that like? Are there any positive or negative VC conversations that, that stand out? I won't ask you to name names. <laughs> of course, our conversations have always been good. But no, it, it's, been, it's been an interesting learning curve for me. I mean, I came from a big company and a, kind of an old world company in some ways, but a very stable engineering company. And honestly, I've relied a lot on my co-founder. Like when it comes to building a good team and finding somebody that just came from USC, just got their MBA and, and just spent two years thinking about how do you start a business? How do you run a business? How do you do all those things? And then complementing that with my skill set, which was really leading a technical team to accomplish a series of goals in a very efficient, timely focused manner. It really is a, a good complementary skill set. And uh, I think uh, for a Midwestern startup, it's, it's unique. Like St. Louis is not first and foremost in people's mind when it comes to a tech ecosystem. And that has strengths and weaknesses with it. From the raising the VC side of things, it's, we're not in those networks. We're not in the California network. We're not in the New York network. However, we've successfully raised funds from both those markets. It just means we're going to have to work a little harder. We're going to have to build those relationships a little bit deeper. And then the counterpoint, when you build a tech startup like what we're doing with Intramotive and you're building it in St. Louis, suddenly you have access to a whole host of talent that can't or doesn't want to move to the coasts. They want to be uh, in the St. Louis area or they want to be in the Midwest in some way. And from a talent perspective, that's been a really strong asset for us is you've got some very strong, stable, established businesses all over the Midwest, but you don't have a lot of these tech startups that are exciting. They are cutting edge and they offer an opportunity for you to come in with everything from end of career. You want to take some risks now to a intern and come in and make an impact where you can be writing code that we're going to use directly instead of updating a code base from the last 30 years of platform developments. Or you can be giving that experiment of building something from nothing. And that is a lot of fun. It's a really strong reason why I'm coming into work every day and, and building these products. But it's a an access to talent pipeline that it is here that you have all the engineering, you, you have all the computer scientists and everything else that you need in this metro area. So I think it's a strength in a lot of ways. And it just means that when it comes to raising capital, we'll, we'll work harder than the rest. Yeah, it might be flying a little more than than others, but it's kind of poetic too. I mean, relative to the industry, St. Louis is historically a major rail hub. It's the the gateway to the West. I, I love that you guys are building there. And, you know, it certainly helps when you're, we're a little biased at Cantos, but when Intermotive is the coolest startup in, in St. Louis, I mean, you guys, it feels like you guys are in different local press every other week. Yeah. 
No, I mean, we are a, a, a big fish here and it's really fun to be in, as you noted, an area with a huge rail history, huge rail presence. Uh, and if you're going east to west, north to south, you have an opportunity to go through St. Louis via rail. And it's also kind of poetic. Like you said, it's a it's considered a Rust Belt area. I mean, realistically, a lot of industry left at different points in the history, but it was built with the backbone of rail running through East St. Louis. And we have an opportunity to revitalize and renew that and champion that it might be a little rusty along the way. But that's also a really exciting thing to be building that on the backbone of, of what helped build the, the country and what it is now. And to connect to that mindset of the the transformational technologies that set up the country and became the backbone of the economy. It's pretty cool. And, and we're excited to, to be doing that right here. Definitely. Tell us how big is the team now and, and how would you describe the culture at Intermotive? Yeah. So the team continues to grow. I think we just hired 16 more people in the, the last eight to nine months, taking us up close to 30 total people. And it's it's been interesting. I think the management skills and things like that, that I've come to it with from Boeing has been good because that is a, a developed skill of its own of trying to help people figure out what to do. And, and when you grow like that, there's always growing pains, but it's pretty, it's a pretty cool team. So we got a lot of Boeing connections, a lot of Boeing history, and that's uh, a great company to be coming from, but we are also pulling in talent from the, the likes of people who have developed driver assist features and computer vision systems for Toyota or people that have developed for Caterpillar and Peoria, who's quietly in Peoria deploying autonomous equipment all over the world in a very market leading type of way. We brought in people who've built autonomous trains. We've got a, a person from Australia that joined our team. We've got a person from Germany that joined our team. We've got people that have come from heavy equipment and industrial automation applications to people that are building hypersonic vehicles. And it's really fun, honestly, to be getting all these ideas where one day we were uh, talking about how fast we need to be processing from this specific sensor and how much data input is coming in. We have a person who's coming from the mindset of an F-18 flying 1.8 times the speed of sound. And we've got another person coming from a traditional rail industry perspective of like, oh, we're going like 25 miles an hour realistically in this scenario. <laughs> and Going from that shock of like, okay, you're right. Don't over-engineer it, but also there's ways to do this better. It's a really cool complement and balance to achieve with here's the best in tech today, but there's a lot of things that rail does well and, and we should keep doing it that way. There's better braking technologies than pneumatic brakes. However, everybody has pneumatic brakes and for most applications, they're sufficient. So we'll keep them and we'll complement them with the regenerative capabilities of a motor and, and things like that. So really fun to be building the team in that way and, and building a culture around that. Well, and your, your office and, and demo space is, is really cool. I'll encourage listeners to go to intramotive.com and you'll see some video of, of where Tim is sitting and the, some of the desks are right next to the, the rail in the building uh, where you guys are working. It's an it's a awesome, awesome space. You guys really lucked out with that. It is amazing to have so much track inside of a building, which is perfectly accessible and uh, two steps away from the, the offices that we might be working at. And uh, it's good to be that close to the product. Like there's a lot of software, there's a lot of electrical components and things like that, where you could argue that you can do this remotely. But when you see it moving and you feel a 60,000 pound empty vehicle that can be loaded up to 286,000 pounds 
rumbling down the tracks and vibrating and you feel it in your chest, it is a pretty powerful, compelling thing. And it, it has that same type of feeling of being a kid at Christmas with a Christmas tree and a, a train running around the tracks, except now you're a big kid and uh, it's a big train moving through a shop. So um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's cool. It's amazing. Well, before I let you go, tell us what the next year or two are going to look like at Intermotive. What, you're, what are you excited about and what keeps you up at night? Yeah, so we're, we're pretty excited. We got our first contracts out there deploying tug volts and our first contracts out there deploying revolts. And then honestly, it's going to be for anyone out there that's listening, that's interested in being in the Midwest and working in a very tech forward startup, I'd encourage you to reach out because we're going to be continuing to grow the team and continuing to push these products forward. We are managing supply chain and things like that, just like everybody else and, and going through those growing pains. And uh, this next year, we're going to continue to make the product better, continue to update the, the product variants, continue to test and validate, continue to integrate. And uh, hopefully we'll be releasing some more public videos of, of this thing live in the wild uh, and running around here. So I'm looking forward to scale that and, and replicate and continuing to engage with customers and, and show them what we can do and solve problems. Well, I can't wait. I'm so excited for, for Cantos to be a part of the Intermotive story. Thanks for letting us be part of the team. And I want everybody who's listening to know, I don't know why you would be listening to Near Frontier as a hard tech skeptic, but Intermotive is a seed stage hardware deep tech company that has revenue uh, and, is, and is shipping product to customers and, you know, I know there's a lot of skeptics out there, probably not listeners to this podcast, who think that deep tech necessarily takes many, many years and tons of money to get to market. And that is sometimes the case, but certainly not always. And I just commend you guys for, for shipping product, for being relatively lean. And, you know, you're building something that customers want because they're already paying you for it. I just think that's so awesome. It's such a testament to it you and the team have built in. I appreciate that. And it is a good feeling to know we are making so much progress with the capital efficiency that we've deployed so far. And maybe some of those Midwest mindsets about what we need to do to deliver value, but we're going to keep down that path. Heck yeah. I love it, Tim. Well, I will let you get back to it. You got a lot to do. Thanks for being on the podcast. All right. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Near Frontier. Links to external content mentioned are available in the show notes and at nearfrontier.com, where you can also find other episodes of the show. To leave feedback or suggest future guests, you can find us on Twitter at Cantos.